Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. We broadcast our program from the historic Habern Building in downtown Louisville. The show is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Health Care, and we're an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. Our current fragmented care system costs twice as much as in other developed countries and delivers worse outcomes. Thousands of Americans die unnecessarily each year because they can't access care. Over 100 million Americans carry medical debt, bankrupting thousands and setting families up for eviction, foreclosures, food insecurity, and more bad health outcomes. That's why we advocate for a national, publicly funded, nonprofit, single-payer system. Everybody in, nobody out. The views and opinions expressed on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Single-payer radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal, you can live stream us. You can go to forwardradio.org. If you miss a show, you can do this at forwardradio.org and go to our archives. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and funding. Join us, forwardradio.org. And very quickly, just wanted to let folks know that health ind- healthcare industries spending on federal lobbying rose 70% from 2000 to 2020. That's according to new research in the Journal of American Medical Association Health Forum. Yeah, are you saying that it went up? 20, it, it, it went up 70 percent. And that includes everyone, including pharmacy, uh, hospitals, doctors. Health care devices, yes. So we wonder why they're calling the shots. So, Mike? Yeah, this is uh, <clears throat> Michael Flynn, retired surgical oncologist from the UofL Surgery Department. Uh, let me begin with the usual disclaimer. Any comments I make during this program represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. My name is Eugene Shawley. I'm a retired general surgeon from uh, Campbellsville, Kentucky. Uh, my views do not represent those of Taylor Regional Hospital nor uh, the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. Our topic today is uh, mental health. We're going to hopefully explore a lot of the issues related to mental health today. Um, It's really kind of uh, exploded as a topic uh, uh, during uh, during the pandemic. And we have a special guest, uh, Jess Wright. Uh, Jess has been on this program a number of times. We've had an excellent program just recently on post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, he's a professor uh, in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Louisville, vice chair of academic affairs, director of the U of L Depression Center. Uh, got his medical degree at Jefferson Medical College, psychiatry residency at Michigan, a PhD at U of L in 1986. 
Jess, uh, welcome back again, and we are grateful that you're willing to come on again and talk with, with us about this really important issue. As we've done in the past, as you know, we're going to give you an opportunity to make whatever comments you'd like to make for as long as you'd like to make them. And then uh, Jean will probably begin with the first question. So the floor is yours. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be on this wonderful program. Uh, your mission is important, and I think it's particularly important for mental health, our topic for today. There are huge disparities across the United States in access to and delivery of the kinds of mental health services that people need. Uh, don't seem to be any good answers right now, although there are some things on the horizon that we might be able to talk about today that might leverage the, uh, the time to seeing clinicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and others uh, by the use of technologies. Uh, and that's been a particular area of interest in my personal research. Uh, so I'd be quite happy to entertain questions on that front and, and talk about that particular application. But one of the things I point out as we just get into this is that uh, the reimbursement rates under managed care had fallen pretty dramatically for mental health um, when managed care first came on the horizon some years ago. I likened the uh, psychiatric treatments to the first wave on the Omaha beaches on D-Day. There was a lot of casualties. Um, and it looked like psychiatry or managed care might be sort of easy pickings, if you will. Uh, pretty hard to turn down somebody who had cancer and needed treatment for that, needed surgery or some of the things that, that Mike might do. Uh, but at least at that time, it seemed to be easier to put the squeeze on people that had psychiatric illnesses. And I saw it at that time and still see it as stigma and, uh, and really inappropriate uh, rationing of health care. And this unfortunately led to the exit from insurance business by huge numbers of psychiatrists and psychologists and others. So if you try to get an appointment to see a psychiatrist in Louisville and our region in Kentucky right now, I think you'll quickly find out that there are many of the practitioners who won't accept your insurance. And the reasons for that are understandable and that the reimbursement rates are low and the hassle factor, that is the uh, red tape that one has to go through and the uh, cost, the costs of doing this in a small office or in a mental health practice uh, can be really overbearing and overburdening. Uh, so that, that's, that's been an issue. In my own particular work at the University of Louisville, uh, we certainly take insurance and even people that don't have it, and we try to reach people of all walks of life and uh, have a great diversity in our practice, but that's not true necessarily across the board. So that's a big issue, and it's a big issue across the United States. It's led to decreased access for much-needed health care, and particularly for the people that need it the most. Let's say, for example, if you have an illness like schizophrenia, pretty severe mental illness, one that often makes it very hard for you to work, um, to um, be able to 
uh, afford and and even figure out how to get access to good treatments, you may find that um, that the kinds of treatments you need may be hard to hard to locate and hard to stick through. Uh, so that's a bit of an introduction about the issue of mental health delivery in the United States. And I'd be glad to welcome any questions from our panel today. Uh, you know, this is one of the fundamental issues that we are concerned about. And one of the reasons we're, we're doing this program is that in this country, we have a healthcare industry that's focused on extracting profit from healthcare activities as opposed to a healthcare system that is focused on providing healthcare. Uh, before we got started, Gene was just making some comments about some of the research that he's done about uh, where the money goes, and maybe we can get into that a little bit later. Uh, Gene, you want to you want to start us off here, and we'll we'll see where it all goes. Why don't you make that explain make that comment again that you were just talking about before we got started, just about where how much money is spent not on healthcare in the healthcare system. Well, it's estimated about a third of the money that's spent on healthcare is not really healthcare. Uh, for example, uh, for-profit insurance companies. Uh, uh, we're now into for-profit uh, nursing homes. When I started off in Campbellsville, we had one predominant nursing home that was owned by a nurse, and uh, her son was the manager, and everybody knew each other everyone was taken care of. Now all the nursing homes are corporately owned and and uh, each each department is uh, uh, owned by different companies and uh, it, they seem to go outside the community to get services. And it's uh, just a non-friendly um, atmosphere where it's obvious that the primary purpose is to make money. But getting back to uh, to uh, psychiatric care, we've seen a lot of dramatic increase in mental health problems since the COVID uh, endemic. And uh, is, is this really true? Uh, and and it, if it is, which I assume it is, what do we do about it? How are we going to deal with it? It is true. Uh, the estimates and research on this is borne out have been at least a 20% increase in depression and in anxiety disorders uh, since the pandemic started. Health services, uh, our service at the University of Louisville, have been swamped by requests for help. And we, we're trying our very best to meet those needs. We're working real hard to hire new people that would be able to deliver services. We've been somewhat successful in this, but there just aren't enough psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers around to be able to deliver the service that's needed. Uh, there's a pipeline problem, if you will. And one of the things, I'll just mention this uh, in passing, is that there's a aging of the uh, whole workforce in psychiatry and psychology. And so that's a growing concern that many of the people are near, they're nearing retirement, retiring or partially retired, which further diminishes the availability of people, particularly when there's a surge like there is, which shows really no sign of letting up yet. Uh, the reasons for this are still unclear. Uh, 
it's not necessarily getting COVID, although I certainly had my share of people that had COVID that that left left them with long-term symptoms that were very distressing, uh, would make anyone depressed, if you will. Um, there are also some neurobiological changes that we think may be playing some role in long COVID and related issues of depression and anxiety. My own daughter, who's a practicing primary care physician in Vermont, uh, just recently had COVID. And un unfortunately, she uh, did develop some residual symptoms uh, and particularly fatigue and uh, difficulties with concentration that have been real hard for her. Uh, she seems to be chipper and getting through it, but you could see that if you had that kind of a thing that was dragging you down, it wouldn't help your mental health very much. Uh, but most of the surgeon and depression and anxiety has been from people that didn't have the kind of COVID that left you with residual symptoms, so-called long COVID, uh, and had relatively minor symptoms or didn't even have COVID at all. Uh, so there'd been a lot of disruption, of course, in society. Uh, lack of ability to be with people that you love, uh, to even be in a church or a synagogue or another house of worship, or to um, be in a sporting event. Now, of course, much of this has changed now, uh, but there's still people that are, that are immunocompromised or quite concerned that they're shying away from public meetings. We saw a lot of isolation, social isolation, which is something that breeds depression and anxiety. That's a conundrum. When people get depressed, they have a sense that um, they don't really feel good about being around people and doing the things they used to do. They tend to drop out of activities that are sustaining and interesting and pleasurable and stimulating, whether it was sports or uh, hobbies or church activities or um, cooking or going to the movies, uh, seeing friends, whatever it might be. And once you back away from that, um, then that seems to escalate the symptoms of depression. So social isolation was almost certainly a part of what happened with the increase in depression and anxiety. Uh, inability to see people who were supportive. How many families didn't get together during the height of the pandemic at times they would usually get together? Even funerals or weddings were called off. So this all had a, uh, an escalation and a cascading effect throughout society. Um, and I think did play a role in the increase in depression and anxiety. I certainly saw in my practice many people who were quite socially isolated. Even before the pandemic, they might have been somewhat vulnerable to that. But then once uh, COVID was roaring through the society, then um, this tendency to pull back and stay away uh, you know, got, it became a big problem. Jess, uh, I'm going to ask you a question which may be an oversimplification about mental health. But I'm going to do it anyway and see how you work. From the standpoint of our, our, our listeners who are not, not, not medical, is there, can you put together, oh, I don't know how to quite, but patterns of who are most vulnerable in terms of mental health issues, men, women, uh, racial disparities, uh, old, young, rural, 
urban, uh, uh, straight, gay, trans? Are there are there, are there sort of patterns that that uh, uh, again? I, I'm asking this as a surgeon with a very limited mental mm -hmm. health experience, uh, so that we could give our listeners a sense of who's going to be the most um, uh, vulnerable to these 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 issues. Well, there are a huge number of questions embedded in that one. I'll try. No, to I know. I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, you mentioned trans and um, LGBTQ, uh, and whether that plays a role. And I think the answer to that is decidedly yes. Uh, particularly with the trans population. And as you might have followed in the news, there are uh, numerous attempts in state legislatures to deny care to uh, young people who have who are identify themselves as trans. That's a pretty big issue, which I won't uh, opine on it right now. If, if the panel wants to get into that, perhaps we could chat about that a bit. But it's a it's a really huge problem, and certainly affects mental health of the not only of the person who uh, identifies as trans, but to their loved ones. Uh, if we get down to more more, more uh, frequent and more common patterns, uh, male female, you asked about um, at, at least in, in regard to depression, uh, there are. Uh, more females that identify as depressed and actually are diagnosed as such in an epidemiological study, scientific study, have been shown to be uh, more have more frequently have depression, uh, roughly two to one, female to male. Although we do see lots of men with depression, it doesn't mean that men are immune to it. Uh, you might wonder, is it because men have somehow had this cultural mandate to uh, suffer in silence or to not talk about depression. And that theory has, I think there's some of that, but that theory has been debunked as the major cause for why there's a, a this decided difference. As far as young and old, uh, the for a long time, the highest rate of suicide was in people like us because I can see you on video and I think there's some white hair out there in the interviewers and I have some too. And, and yeah, all, I see some white we're hair all, as well. We're all old white guys and that, that's a particularly vulnerable population. Uh, and it still is a real concern about the high risk for suicide. Um, so that's in, in white elderly males. Uh, but more recently, there's been a surge in middle-aged increase in, in suicide rates. But you, you can have uh, suicide at any time in life from very young to, to very old. Uh, so we have to be careful not to look at look through the lens of an epidemiologist and say, well, you're a, a, a young male, so your chances of suicide or depression are, are so small, I'm not going to worry about you. We have to worry about each individual because there are lots of things that that go into someone becoming depressed. Many of the things we still really don't know that much about, like the neurobiology of depression, despite 
really billions of dollars in research. We know a lot. We've learned a lot, but we still can't pin it down and say, well, for this individual, it's this molecule or this imbalance that causes your depression. It's probably multifactorial. Uh, there's also lots of research that's been done on the genetics of depression and anxiety disorders and other common mental health pro problems, schizophrenia, particularly bipolar disorder. And the despite all this research, there's still no smoking gene, if you will, or smoking gun that says this gene is what causes schizophrenia or this gene causes bipolar disorder. So we don't know yet, although we're currently involved at the University of Louisville in a major study on the genetics of severe depression. Uh, and if you've, if you've had severe depression and you'd like to become a part of the study, it's pretty simple. Uh, we can interview you, uh, collect data on your history, uh, collect a saliva specimen, send it down to Johns Hopkins University where it becomes a part of a huge data pool. And hopefully through collection of many thousands of life histories and samples, we'll be able to get down to figuring this out and and that that will be very helpful and will will help this predict who that might be a young person say a young um, teenage man who or boy and it looks like there's no depression there but is this person likely to get it over the course of his lifetime and should we be doing things early on to try to prevent it now a couple of years before i retired uh the surgery department I'd gone with Grand Rounds on gun violence in Louisville. <clears throat> and one of the issues that I learned was that the highest rate of, of gun violence in the West End of Louisville were young black men shooting each other, and the highest rate of gun violence in the East End of Louisville were middle-aged men shooting themselves. It's committing suicide. So it's mm -hmm. uh, Interesting. That, that sounds that sounds right. Yeah. Uh, getting to this issue of uh, uh, middle age and older men committing suicide, one of the things that uh, in the last couple of years that uh, I've been interested in is uh, retirement and how does retirement affect depression? I, I. I guess it's because of the way it's affected me. I've had problems with retiring. I, I'm, I'm a self-diagnosed workaholic, and I really like to try to stay busy. But I've seen a lot of retired people who, you know, have been busy all their lives, and then all of a sudden they retire, and then they don't have anything to do. And I think that our society is neglecting those people and they could be used at least on a part-time basis uh, in, in providing service in many different ways. And I, I just wonder your thoughts about that. The other uh, question I want to ask is uh, the, the reimbursement for psychiatry is so low it makes it difficult to uh, keep a service going. And how do you do that at UL? Do you have to have supplemented money or do you, do you bring in enough money to keep the service going through your clinical practice? Well, there are two great questions. I'll take them in order. Uh, the first had to do with retirement. And I think you put your finger on an issue is that if someone retires and they're not prepared to 
have a life that's that's fulfilling and purposeful and interesting or even keeps them busy, if you will, then the chances of there being depression or some other malady, uh, perhaps even physical disorders, are, are, are reasonably high. And in my clinical work, I, I, I try to help people prepare for their retirement and ask them questions about what life is going to be like for them and what kinds of plans they have. Uh, I, I'm a kind of a person that believes that one always needs to have some goals, things you're working toward, even in very old age, things that you enjoy, things that count for you, things that are meaningful for you. And uh, if that if the faucet turns off whenever you stop working for that kind of feeling of a life of meaning and purpose, then you might be in trouble. Uh, some of you may have heard of the, the psychiatrist who was in Auschwitz. His name was Viktor Frankl. And he wrote a book right after he got out of Auschwitz, the concentration camp, uh, called Man's Search for Meaning. And in that, he, he laid out a theory and then developed a whole therapy about it that said that uh, if one had a sense of meaning and purpose in one's life, that that was a relative antidote toward despair, depression, and so forth. And um, so he encouraged people to try to, try to find that in any way they can. So obviously, a lot of people retire and their life is better, they think. They've, they've been looking forward to it. They have time to do things that they'd always wanted to do. They're, perhaps they're uh, doing child care for grandchildren or uh, they're doing volunteer work. I see that you fellows are volunteering for this very important purpose and having radio shows. I would say that you've made a successful transition, at least in this part of your life. So that's that's something to be to be uh, thought about and planned for. In my own personal life, uh, I'm working half time now. And I really enjoy that. One of the nice things about psychiatry is a medical profession and the medical profession is as long as you don't get dementia, you can practice for a pretty long time because you don't have to, you don't have to stand in front of a, a, and do surgery, which is pretty exhausting and takes a lot of psychomotor uh, coordination and so forth. And I, you could, you could, you're better, ex, you're experts on this than I'm not, but I suspect that there are not too many surgeons that are working in their late seventies. Well, once you get to a certain age, uh, with all the issues related to surgery, if something happens, whether it's your fault or not, the number of your age is like an anchor hanging around your neck. So, yeah, I would think that's probably yeah. true. Yeah, that's Love the reason you. I retired. Yeah. Uh, the, and you were going to answer the question about finances that Jane had asked about. Right. I, I, I wasn't quite finished in talking about my oh, own. Okay, business. sorry. I'll, I'll share that. I said, um, about uh, six, seven years ago, I thought, well, if I'm going to be fully retired, I I need something new, some, some goal, something to stimulate, something to dig into. So uh, I, I'd done a fair amount of medical writing along the way, I've written several textbooks that are well received and are still used all around the world and some self-help books. I thought, well, gee, maybe you could write some fiction, uh, maybe even write a novel. So, in fact, uh, that's what I decided to do. And I hired a writing coach and, and uh, had a copy editor and 
finally got an agent. And so that's, I'm doing that part-time now. And I really enjoy that. I love yeah. That. Well, Jane and I have both read, read the, the book, uh, follow the stream. And I, we were impressed. I, I just never thought about you as somebody with that. Yeah, well, I'm of, glad you read it. Creative yeah, ability. <laughs> the book is, uh, is called a stream to follow. It's available on Amazon, or you can get it at Carmichael's bookstore in Louisville or Barnes and Noble. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there's some surgery in there, isn't there? There's a yeah. I was surprised at that too. <laughs> I, I'm sure that you could critique the what I wrote up about the surgical scenes, but anyway, I gave it a try. Well, from, I did, I decided not to be to be kind about that. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to turn over to the to the answer about uh, finances, and uh, I think you you've brought up a very important problem that it's hard to keep insurance-based practices open and sustained and to pay the people that work there a fair wage and a competitive wage to what might be paid in other kinds of situations. Uh, and so we do have that problem in, in the university setting. And I would say typically university salaries are lower than uh, salaries out in the community. That's probably true for surgeons too, isn't it? Uh, it depends. Uh, there's a lot of variability depending upon how uh, clinically active a surgeon would be compared to academically active. So, right. Uh, it, it again, it just it's a lot of variability. Right. Well, in in mental health, there aren't any kinds of uh, large procedures that you bill thousands of dollars for. It's just your time. If you spend. 20 minutes or an hour that and Medicare reimburses for a certain amount, then that's what you get. And you have to make a go of it with that. So you have to be very careful about expenditures and people have to meet their quotas and work pretty hard. And that's what happens. But I think in academic settings and in, in the university settings, you get a lot of clinicians who are dedicated to teaching and to providing care in that particular kind of environment. Now, just where does social media fit into all this? You know, I was thinking as I, I was actually driving in here to do this, uh, you know, we, I grew up and my children, and they're all grown adults and, and uh, we've got, I've got a bunch of grandchildren. This wasn't an issue. I mean, it's Facebook and TikTok, and I don't even know what all these things are and everything from people showing pictures of their last meal they ate, their, their pets, and all the good things they're doing. This, I, I guess this, um, this creates all kinds of, of, of comparison issues about how much better somebody's life is who's advertising it on Facebook compared to what maybe this person who isn't, I don't know, going to ski in France or hiking in Nepal or something like that. How much of an issue? I mean, I know it's an issue, but I, I guess I'd mm -hmm. like your thoughts about that. Right. Uh, well, I preface this with saying that I'm really not an expert in social media or its impact on mental health. I've read some papers on it and have my own opinions. I'll share a bit of that. Uh, I think it's... Uh, something that can be beneficial to some people and also harmful to others, particularly if you have a condition like depression, low self-esteem. Uh, as you mentioned, 
comparing yourself to others, particularly teenagers, youngsters that are feeling like they're on the outs. They're not one of the, the uh, in crowd and they see that on social media. Uh, they don't have many friends or if they get unfriended or cruel things are said to them or even they're even bullied sometimes on social media. So that can be quite concerning. Uh, some of the worst things for mental health would be uh, messages that encourage people to commit suicide or uh, encourage other kinds of violence or other things that are you know quite disturbing. And so that, that can become an issue as I'm sure all of you are aware. Um, I think there there's some benefits. Uh, I use social media some, and I use it in some of these ways. One is I I haven't done as much Twitter since all the stuff with Elon Musk taking it over. I'm a little concerned about it, uh, but I have used it in the past. I just used it recently to tweet on a topic that I thought was important. I use it mostly for scientific findings, uh, observations that I think. Uh, are important to pass along to others who follow me. Um, it, breakthroughs in treatment, uh, that, that sort of thing. And I think that that has a value. There are some physicians that have become experts in social media. Uh, my son's one of them. He's a surgeon, by the way, at the University of Washington. And he has a huge number of followers. And he's he tweets... Uh, on scientific findings, scientific articles, new uh, observations that he thinks people should need on surgical education. Uh, and I think he's doing some good with it. Uh, so it's like most other things in our culture that has its, its good side and its bad side. So we need to watch out, but also not uh, pillory it as some kind of an evil that has to be stamped out. I think it's with us to stay. One of the uh, aspects of doing uh, psychotherapy over the internet, we even seeing it advertised on TV now. Right. Well, this is another controversial area. Um, there's been an explosion of this, particularly since COVID, because people want therapy. They have trouble finding it, getting it, getting access to it. And if you can just uh, go online and you'll be assigned a therapist and you can type messages to the person or perhaps do a Zoom call. Uh, many people are finding that helpful. Uh, on the other hand, there are questions about who are these therapists? Uh, how good are they? Is the match to the person a good one? Uh, they're typically not, they're not coming uh, through the usual routes of say being Recommend by a, recommended by a primary care physician or a clergy person or whatever that might know, uh, might know therapists quite well and might know psychiatrists quite well and, and have an understanding of which patient in their practice might be matched with a kind of therapist that, that they know about in the community, which is something I might do. So I do some therapy myself, but as a psychiatrist, I uh, often can't deliver as intensive uh, therapy as some people might need, like marital counseling and so forth. Uh, so I have a cadre of people that I will refer to in the community and try to 
make a really good match if I can do it. It doesn't always work, but I think it probably increases the chances of a, of a, of a good fit. Um, there are some, some issues with this that uh, concern me regarding state licensure boards. And the, the states control licensure for physicians and for most other professions. And for the most part, they're now forbidding uh, practice by telemedicine or telepsychiatry, in my case, across state lines, unless you're licensed in each state. Uh, and that's really antiquated, if you think about it, because we can do a Zoom call, and at least in psychiatry, we can deliver care, which is real close and perhaps in some cases just as good as in person. About you no know, 85, 90% of my patients now I see on Zoom and they like it. Uh, they can, we can, we can hear one another's voice. We can see our emotions. We can uh, be very expressive and supportive, empathic. Um, and that it's convenient. So people don't have to drive down to downtown Louisville park, pay for the parking, come and sit in a waiting room and so forth. I'll see people that are taking a break from their work and they're out in their car at lunchtime and we're having a session. And I think that's working really great. So I wouldn't want to turn back the clock on that. That's a form of, of telepsychiatry that's done typically within the state. But for example, uh, I, I practice in Kentucky. If, if patients of mine live in Indiana, just right across the river, I can't see them by uh, Zoom. They have to come into the office because of medical licensure and malpractice issues and so forth. Well, so, and look, at various, look, look at the various medical specialties. Um, uh, the surgical specialties really don't have the same uh, opportunity to, to be use uh, telemedicine effectively you look at the medical specialties and they're in different ranges. And it seems to me that psychiatry is the one simply because of the verbal interaction that goes on that would benefit, seems to benefit the most from right. the whole telemedicine issue. Yeah, very much so. Uh, it's even more efficient for me. So instead of having to walk back and forth to the waiting room and meet and greet and get people signed in, back and forth, probably lose, I don't know, 15% of the time I might have with a patient. I just, it's a click and they're on. So I just go from one patient to the other. There's a, maybe five seconds in between to take a breath yeah. or maybe, you know, go to the restroom occasionally during the day on a busy day. So I think I'm giving people more of my time uh, this way or more okay. of my concentrated time. I sort of give them the time if I'm walking back from the waiting room to the, to the office with them. Do you have people? I think that's a good thing. Uh, now, I did want to mention the whole area of research that I've been heavily involved with for over 25 years, and that's a type of therapy called computer-assisted psychotherapy. And the goal of this is to have developed computer programs that are very engaging, interesting, uh, helpful, effective and can do part of the skill building or education and other parts of the therapy that are sort of routine things for therapists 
And so that, that way therapists can get more accomplished with more patients quicker. So our research has shown that with computer-assisted therapy, using a computer program I helped to develop called Good Days Ahead, that we can cut the amount of therapist time required for effective treatment by about two-thirds. And there are other studies done in Scandinavia, in Germany, that have been able to reduce the clinician time even further. Um, I don't know if anybody's doing anything like that in surgery or trying to make surgeons more efficient, but this is a way that makes psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers more efficient. That is, they could treat, using the software, they could treat three, maybe four times as many patients with the available time. And the effectiveness is the same. And the uh, the affinity, that is, the, whether patients like it and think it's valuable and would recommend it and so forth, it's the same. In fact, some of them, some patients actually prefer to have a part of their treatment done via computer. Uh, it's something that's very convenient for them, interesting, engaging, and it means they don't have to sit and talk with a psychiatrist for as many hours. Uh, so, for example, and there's a form of therapy called cognitive behavior therapy. It's very well-known treatment. There have been over 400 randomized controlled trials that show that it works for depression and anxiety. And in studies that we've done, we've shown that you can compare computer-assisted therapy with a standard course of 20 hours of cognitive behavior therapy, uh, and the results are the same. They both work. So that's very encouraging. So getting back to your question, I say that there are lots of opportunities here. Uh, I don't, the genie's out of the bottle, if you will, for psychiatry. We're never going to go back to the fact that every last bit of treatment is done in the doctor's or the therapist's office face-to-face. I can't ever see it going back. In fact, we're probably going to be looking at an era of increased use technology, um, the group that I work with just put in a grant request to the federal government to develop an artificial intelligence-based engagement program for computer-assisted therapy. And if it gets funded, it'll be great because we'll be able then to have the resources to apply some of this fascinating work with artificial intelligence to helping psychiatric patients have greater access to treatment, treatment that they like, treatment that's effective, treatment that makes sense. So I'm, I'm open to questions on this. You might wonder, gee, would a psychiatric patient really mind being on a computer for part of their treatment? Or, or how do you mix the human parts of therapy and the computer parts? How do you coordinate those? And there are a lot of questions here. Uh, but again, I think it's, it's something that's, that's here with us and it's going to be expanding in the future. Um, I've got a couple of questions that's bothered me. I thought I'm still doing these home visits for the company that uh, uh, contracts with insurance companies. And I see a lot of patients who are on multiple psych drugs. I mean, I'm talking about three and four and five different drugs. And uh, I have trouble deciding uh, really do they need to be on all these drugs. And nobody ever seems to try to uh, to titrate them off some of them. 
And the other issue that, that concerns me is that there's so many people being diagnosed with being bipolar, and yet uh, uh, if you talk to them, they've never had a manic uh, face in, in their whole life. And are they really bipolar? And if they're not, how do you uh, correct that? How do you get that diagnosis off their chart? Okay, well, we have two two questions and nudge me on the first one. What did you want to take on with that one? Uh, how do we get some of these people off psych drugs? Or right. it, should mm -hmm. people be on four or five different psych drugs? Mm -hmm. so I don't think anyone knows what, if you're taking five psych drugs, what it does to you. Okay, very controversial. Um, and I would admit to being a guilty party as a psychiatrist to having some of my patients on multiple medications. Uh, it would be ideal if one drug would work, so-called monotherapy. Uh, but for many of the patients that come our way, particularly in my practice, which is a consultant's practice, I'm the director of the depression center at the U of L. So a lot of the people that come to me have already seen a whole bunch of other psychiatrists, primary care doctors have tried, you name the number of medications and still have symptoms. Uh, so we have to be creative and thinking about how we can get these people better. And the answer typically is not take them off everything and just try one other antidepressant. Uh, there's a whole huge amount of research that's been done on so-called treatment augmentation. That is of adding one medication to another one or even two medications to another one in order to boost the effects of that, that initial drug. So let's take depression, for example. About 20% of people with depression don't respond well at all to the initial treatment with one drug or one psychotherapy. And they go on to what we call have chronic depression. Only a third of people that get treated with an antidepressant have what's called a remission. That means it goes away completely. So if you're in a position like mine, which is one of trying to help people get rid of the depression completely, and they come to me, hardly ever is the answer, well, let's just find one drug that's going to work for you. It's usually a combo of one sort or the other. I prefer it if it's just two drugs or maybe three. Uh, and if I see five or six or eight, <laughs> my uh, antenna are, are, are waving here and I'm trying to think, well, is this, are all these things needed or could they be having side effects that are not, uh, that are, that are really harmful or are there some kind of drug interactions that may be problematic? Um, but I don't think it's evil, if you will, to have multiple psychiatric drugs on board. I think what, if as a primary care doctor, the questions would be, is, is the treatment plan reasonable? Is the psychiatrist or the other person who's prescribing this, a nurse practitioner or whatever, are they on top of this case? Um, if you have questions about it, you can ask, uh, uh, and I'll get those from, I'll get, now we, now we have a nice electronic medical record with Epic. I'll get questions about, well, can Mrs. X taper off drug Z because 
I'm concerned about it for some medical reason or whatever. And then we have a discussion and say sometimes yes, and or maybe sometimes no. Um, and we have to have a big discussion with the patient. Uh, an example of that might be lithium. Uh, lithium is a fascinating drug. It's uh, an element you can mine it out of the earth. Of course, there's a big quest for lithium now to fill up the all the batteries, electric cars. They're going to be on the road. Uh, but lithium was discovered back in the 50s as an effective treatment for bipolar disorder. And despite all the new drugs that have been developed and, and used for um, bipolar disorder and other conditions, lithium remains one of the gold standards. But it does have long-term side effects. So there often can be a discussion with the patient and uh, primary care doctors, internists, and so forth about uh, whether it's wise to continue that sort of a drug. Um, so anyway, I'm getting getting back to trying to answer that question. I'd say that uh, there you can go overboard with having too many, but on the other hand, uh, trying to be so parsimonious that you only use one drug or no drugs with people that have very serious recurrent illnesses like depression, um, probably not the wisest idea. Now there is some data, there are some data on antipsychotics for schizophrenia that suggests that adding two antipsychotics doesn't really help, just add side effect burden. What about ketamine? Uh, well, ketamine's another story altogether. Ketamine's uh, is used in anesthesia. It's a hallucinogen. Uh, it has, it's a pretty dirty drug, if you will, because it, it uh, not only works for things like anesthesia, but it has all kinds of other effects on the brain. And it's it was discovered that ketamine had a very rapid effect on reducing depressive symptoms. The problem with it is that it, well, there are several problems with it, but one of them is that it uh, typically doesn't last very long. So even though you might have a very rapid response to ketamine, it, it goes the response goes away quickly. So it hasn't been a great long-term treatment well, there's some clinics now, and we're not among those at Louisville, but there are some clinics where they're administering continued ketamine doses. It's usually their IV or by inhalation. You can't take a pill with it now. But it has opened a whole new area of research and looking at drugs that act somewhat like ketamine but may have fewer issues associated with them, particularly the hallucinatory kinds of experiences. Uh, Jess, let me ask you a couple of questions about access to mental health care. And some of this may not be uh, quite fair, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, compared to other first world countries, where with our um, medical uh, health care industry in this country, where most of the other first world countries have got health care systems that uh, most of which are part of which are, are run by a go have government insurance or government running the whole system like it is in Britain. Uh, the question is, how does our access to mental health care in this country compare with some of those? That's number one. Second question is, um, uh, apparently, uh, and apparently the federal government expanded access to uh, uh, Medicaid 
uh, healthcare in a broad sense during the pandemic. And apparently this is now going to be reevaluated. And I was reading in the paper this morning that as much as 125,000 people in Kentucky could could be reevaluated and could lose their Medicare Medicaid coverage. So could you, uh, uh, your thoughts about both of those issues, the comparison of our health, mental health access compared to other first world countries, and what impact is, is it going to have if a bunch of people in Kentucky lose Medicaid? Yeah, I'd be glad to take those on. Uh, I also have a question that was asked about bipolar, which I'll go back to. Okay. So I'll do that quickly before we go on to to these all two right. questions. All right, fire yeah. away. Well, you, you, you fellows are great about asking two questions at once. You're <laughs> testing my memory here. <laughs> yeah. But on the bipolar front, again, I'll be a contrarian here. I know that there's concern. Lots of physicians think that bipolar is overdiagnosed. But the actual research shows that bipolar is probably underdiagnosed. Uh, there was a study several years ago that found, I think it was about... 60% of people that had true bipolar disorder were either undiagnosed or incorrectly diagnosed. The most in common incorrect diagnosis is major depression, which is unipolar, meaning they only have depressive episodes. And so I think the comment was they, that the patient never had a mania. Well, you have to spend some time with these people to really take a really great history. Anybody that has depression, I spent a lot of time with them trying to dissect out do they have major depressive disorder or do they have bipolar disorder? Because the treatment is different. If you try to pay, treat a patient with bipolar disorder with the same medications as you do with major depression, you very well could make them worse. So it's a very important decision. And I find lots of patients come to me that were diagnosed as unipolar or major depression, treated for years with antidepressants and or have never gotten better and they've just gotten worse and if you listen to them carefully and go back over their history it turns out that they did have at least hypomanic symptoms hypomania means milder symptoms there, there are at least two forms of bipolar disorder there's a classic bipolar one which has pretty flagrant symptoms of mania people that are expansive uh grandiose uh spending way too much money making big errors, getting themselves in trouble over, over their behavior. Uh, and then there are more subtle cases that unless you ask, you're not, and spend some time with it, know what to ask, you very well might miss. Um, so of course there are people that are diagnosed with bipolar that don't have it. Uh, perhaps they have substance dependence of some kind, substance use disorder, and it's really been a substance that's that's led to their expansive irresponsible behavior. Uh, perhaps they've uh, a patient for one reason or another has misstated what's happened for because they want to prove they had bipolar for one reason or another. Uh, but I think we have to the, the diagnosis is very important. I want to make that point. And we have to be careful to have people that might have chronic conditions like depression or perhaps bipolar see an expert who will take the time to uh, figure this out. Just it's just it's, not, it's not easy to figure it out. I'll, I can tell you that a, a, a particular uh, 
a classic kind of situation for me is somebody comes in referred, they've had chronic depression, maybe bipolar, I don't know. Most of them don't think they have bipolar disorder. Most patients don't want to believe they have it. They think it has more stigma. They think it's worse than depression. So often what I'll do is I, I have a, a, a book that I suggest they read. It's um, called The Bipolar Survival Guide. It's a great book. I say, well, we don't know for sure. It takes some time to figure this out. So would you be interested in reading that book and thinking about it a bit and come back and we'll talk some more? Or how about we even have your partner come in at the next session and we'll see what your partner has to say. And uh, often, just, just often that's we're, very just, we're just about out of time. Here, yeah. I think. <laughs> okay. So I made my point about bipolar. Take on uh, the insurance question. Yeah, well, you, you got to do it quick because we're, we're, we're just, we got about okay. two minutes, two minutes left. <laughs> yeah. The comparison with other systems. Uh, I know the English system pretty well because I, uh, worked over there with colleagues and done filming over there for some of my books. And uh, they do have uh, greater access to mental health care. They do have national programs to try to train therapists in the best available uh, evidence-based treatments, which we don't have national programs to do that here. Uh, so at least in the UK, I think it's better. Uh, as far as the decreased access to Medicaid, huge problem. Uh, people that are on Medicaid now are getting services, and if they're cut off, that's going to be that big slunk, big hunk of the population that's not going to get treatment. Well, listen, let me let me thank you very much. We have had a, this is a, a great program. <laughs> you are a great guest, and our 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 listeners are going to learn a lot. Uh, thank you again. Uh, uh, Mark is about to take us out. Thank you. Thanks again, Doctor Wright. Uh, is there are there a couple besides the book you just mentioned, but if someone's experiencing some crises, some resources that you could uh, direct our listeners to? Sure, I'd be glad to. I have a self-help book for depression called Breaking Free from Depression. It's available widely on the internet. I recommend that one. The other one I recommend for depression is Mind Over Mood. Uh, by Greenberger and Podesky. Uh, both of those books are very helpful for people that have depression. Uh, as far as anxiety, the best books that I, workbooks that I know of are Mastering Your Anxiety and Panic and Mastering Your Anxiety and Worry, both by Kraske and Barlow. That's a mouthful right now, but I think any of those books, if you uh, want to read about something and think it would be helpful to you, they're workbooks, so you 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 build skills and you learn things and you practice them as you go through the book. Good deal. Thanks again. For more information about Kentuckians for single payer healthcare, you can go to kyhealthcare.org. Kyhealthcare.org. You can email our chairperson directly, Katello at nurse NPO at aol.com. And uh, again, listeners, thanks for listening. And we will see you again next week. Bye. Uh, Jess. Hi. Uh, we, I, I got.